this is Gary Burgess and welcome to a special edition of the Emmy Show to mark Severe Emmy Week. Once again, the Emmy Association is supporting this podcast and it seems a good time to recommend to you their website, emmyassociation.org.uk and you can also look them up on social media. Now, I'm one of the lucky ones. My Emmy means with careful planning and a lot of self-care, I can work around two days a week these days, though I'm no stranger to my own boom and bust cycles and crashes. Will I ever learn? Probably not. But it feels nothing compared to those who would clearly be defined as experiencing severe Emmy, which has, frankly, stolen their lives. Later in this podcast, I'll be speaking to an expert on navigating the maze of the benefits system. But first, to somebody who has severe Emmy, whose story I know you'll appreciate hearing. Joe Moss, welcome to the Emmy show. How are you this morning? Um, I'm okay, thank you. It's been a long night with this hot weather. I don't sleep, but I'm I'm okay, thank you. And and what does okay actually mean? Because what we're talking to you in the context of raising awareness of severe ME, and I have my own ME diagnosis and my own ME experience. But but what does okay mean for you? Um, I guess a lot different than it means for other people. I'm so used to saying okay, it's easier. Um, I have a severe form of ME, although when I first was diagnosed, it was moderate. I became severe about seven years ago. I'm pretty much bedbound. I can take a, stu- a few steps to the bathroom, but that's it. Uh, the rest of the time, I am confined to my bed. I rely on my husband and carers to do pretty much everything for me, from preparing my food to helping me... Um, with my personal hygiene, so showering and getting dressed and stuff, and even talking, <laughs> you might hear it in my voice, is exhausting. So it's pretty much, I, I live most of my life in isolation because interactions with others are so exhausting. I also um, suffer quite a lot with hypersensitivity, so that's to noise, um, to even things like smells, to touch, to light. So the room that I live in is adapted to to help with that, but um, as soon as I have to go out like for hospital appointments, um, it makes me very ill. It's kind of like I'm allergic to the world that's out there. So okay is, um, I guess I'm not in a full crash and um, I'm able to talk. <laughs> I'm glad you explained that because it's 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 funny how many people I include myself in my own little way. Uh, we use the word okay because it's actually exhausting to explain what's really going on. So I appreciate every word you and I are saying is expending your energy, but I I hope people will find it useful. If you are living in your adapted room and you've been living in this situation for seven years, how do how do you cope inside your body? I mean, I mean, just the basics of, of boredom or frustration or the sense of missing out. How, how have you developed those coping mechanisms? It's extremely hard, um, extremely hard. I, I actually, I write a blog. I started about 18 months ago because before that I just wasn't well enough to. Um, but I've also recently written a blog about um, Emmy and boredom and it, it's very hard and it's not just boredom when you're locked inside your head um, things like anxiety take over and um, 
you don't have anything to distract you from that. So um, when I first became severe seven years ago, um, I wasn't even able to communicate. I was locked inside my body. So um, it was really frustrating because I couldn't get across to people how I was feeling, why I was acting the way I was, um, how they could help me. And so all that was going round and round in my brain for hours and hours every day because I was by myself and unable to communicate was um, it was just these frustrating thoughts that were just going round and round. You do you do adapt and you find I used to play little games in my brain like it's called the alphabet game and a numbers game um, and think about memories from the past, happy times, uh, family. Um, I also used to make up limericks, um, which was a way of um, calming my thoughts because they can get overactive and they just speed out of control because you have no way of communicating that to other people. I am lucky enough I have improved a, a little bit over the last couple of years. I'm still bed bound, but I'm able to communicate more. I'm able to write my blog, which has been um, amazing very cathartic for me because I've been able all the thoughts that were running through my head for years I was able to write down and share with people and give myself a voice which I'd lost but it is hard it does get lonely audiobooks are great um, I'm not able to read or normal books or watch tv but even that was too much when I was at my worst but they are a great way of escaping it's it's interesting, isn't it? There are there are so many people in this world who complain about not having too not having enough time on their hands, and and there's you describing all the consequences of effectively having too much time on your hands, and 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 the noise inside yourself filling that space. I'm I, I'm delighted you're in a position where you are able to write your blog because you've got a lovely way with words. I mean, it's fascinating reading your blog. Just just give us a shameless plug for it. What's it called and what sort of things can we read about? It's called uh, Journey Through the Fog, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, <laughs> basically, uh, I started it to give myself a voice, completely for selfish reasons, but also to reach out to other people to let them know that when they're at their worst, like I was six, seven years ago, I was suicidal, I... Um, I couldn't see any way forward. I, I lost my independence. I lost. My, I was in constant pain, um, and that is so hard um, to, to come to terms with. So I wanted to reach out to people and say things do get better. Um, also, maybe give tips and things I've learned over the last seven years that have helped me uh, raise awareness about ME. But it's not just that. I also talk about mental health because it's a big part of my health. Um, and having ME can really affect that as well. Um, so it, it's really a way of reaching out to other people, raising awareness. I've been able to use it as a platform um, to raise awareness, which um, is, is been a really nice thing to be able to do. Um, so, yeah, it's a journey through the fog. I've got a website um, and I'm on all the social media platforms. So yeah, pop over and come and find me. Yeah, I, I recommend you do. Um, I'll, I'll put the link in the show notes with this podcast as well. It's 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 really interesting. Any time I, I read other people's experiences of ME, uh, one, it's it's lovely when there's a moment where you think, oh, thank goodness, it's not just me. But but also just sometimes picking up the the, the smallest of hints and tips. Uh, I just wonder, Joe. I, I don't want to put you on the spot, but whether there are any particular things in your mind right now that. Uh, 
that you wish you'd known seven years ago that you've learned through your own experience that you could share with others others yeah um don't fight it rest <laughs> Um, the biggest thing, I was given really bad advice from medical professionals, but I'm also the sort of person that pushes through everything, and I've always done that. I felt guilty about resting, feeling lazy, um, but rest is your friend, and you can't rest enough. Um, you often feel like you're sleeping your life away or you're wasting it, but the really is the most productive thing you can do is rest. And it wasn't until I was completely forced to seven years ago when I, I was just um, knocked out in bed bound and couldn't function and I I had to rest that I started making improvements uh, but there's also there's uh, little things that I've picked up which you don't realize quite how much you pick up but adapting the area around you to make tasks simpler to make your life more comfortable um, but rest is the biggest thing <laughs> Yeah, it's funny that you you used a phrase that that I use all the time, which is "don't fight it" because you're not going to win. I I spend my whole life fighting against um, my ill health, my health, and uh, like I started off with mild ME, which became moderate, became severe. Um, there are were other things that caused that, um, but a lot of it was because I I refused to accept how ill I was, and I refused to let myself be ill. Um, let myself rest and be kind to myself and do what my body needed. Yeah. But I think society has a, um, unfortunately, that's what we're taught is to talk to push through and, and um, we're being lazy if we rest and, and that really needs to change. It's true, isn't it? You're absolutely right. You know, if, if we if we have a, a general illness, if we have an operation and we recuperate, it's all about doing a bit more, then a bit more, then a bit more. And actually, with with this damn thing, that's that's precisely the worst thing you can do. What if if, if I'm not being over nosy? Was was there a particular thing that happened seven years ago that that your circumstances then took a took a very downhill turn? Um. I had a uh, back injury, which didn't help, but I was also reassessed for my benefits. I was moved over from incapacity benefit to employment support allowance. And there's no, it's no coincidence, this happened eight years ago. The appeals process took two years. Uh, at the beginning of it, I had uh, moderate ME. At the end of the appeal, I was severe and bed bound. And there's no coincidence in that. But there were other things, uh, but stress was a big impact. But, and also, it's exhausting. Going through that whole process is exhausting. I mean, it's, so, it's, it um, is the yeah. equivalent of going through a legal fight or, or going through a court case to clear your name is going through an appeals process effectively at the at, at the very time you you do not have the the physical capacity to do it, but you're less forced to do that. It is. It's uh, it's not just the whole exhausting process. It's you're made to feel like you're uh, a fraud. You're claiming something you're not entitled to. I was assessed at a time where my ME was moderate. I was on, I was, my, my life was still severely affected by ME. I was unable to work, full support of my GP. And I was assessed as 100% fit to work. I didn't even receive one point on my medical assessment. Um, and that's um, really upsetting at a time when you, you need help. Um, and you do feel like you're, you're being accused of being a fraud and you're trying to claim something you're not entitled to, which we are completely 100% entitled to. Is there, th th this may sound like a controversial question, is there anything with hindsight where you can understand why the assessors who perhaps aren't seeing ME every day 
just don't get it. And so for them, they they misconclude what your entitlement is. Do you do you have any empathy or sympathy with hindsight, or is the system just wrong? The system's wrong. I okay. have no empathy. If it was just people there, me, that were being treated this way, then that might be a different thing. Uh, but it's across the board with all illnesses, uh, physical and mental illnesses. Um, it's not fit for purpose, the whole um, benefit system and the uh, the process to, to claim it. Um, the, it doesn't help that I was, from my so-called medical assessment, I was assessed by an ex-nurse who'd never heard of ME or even chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, but I provided evidence and loads of uh, backing evidence, I had a very supportive GP at the time, and that was all completely disregarded. So um, ignorance is not the only issue, the, the whole system is broken. And what's happened since? Do you have to be reviewed? Has the system got better post your appeal? What are your circumstances like now? Okay, so I was um, migrated over from um, incapacity benefit to employment support allowance eight years ago. The whole appeal process with uh, one problem after another, it was a complete mess up, took two years, and it completely broke me. Like I said, I was bed bound by the end of it. Six months later... After that whole ordeal, I got the dreaded brown envelope again and the whole process started again. Oh, it doesn't stop. That is the problem. Um, it is constant. You're constantly worried when you're going to be reassessed next. When's it going to turn up? Because you know it's going to. Um, and it's, it's a constant process. As soon as you recover from um, applying once, you, you get um, reassessed. Even though um, when you have long-term and you have chronic conditions, you're not suddenly going to get better. It's a waste of money and it's exhausting. Um, beginning of this year, I was reassessed for my uh, personal independent payment, PIP. I had my medical in March and two months later, I got my uh, reassessment form through for ESA. I'm waiting on um, an appointment for a medical. Um, and that's another frustrating thing. You have to go through the medical every time and I don't understand that. Uh, the medical is exhausting, even though they come to my house. I'm laying in bed, but talking for an hour, answering their questions. We all know brain fog is a huge problem. Um, and it's physically exhausting talking, mentally. But there's also the stress of it. My last medical, I actually videoed myself afterwards, but my, my whole body went into these violent spasms because of the stress it put me through. And it took me weeks to recover. Having to go through that regularly over and over again um, is soul-destroying. It really is. And it's, it's, it's a false economy, isn't it? You know, in, in effect, there's a system in place that for some people you included is, is perhaps exacerbating an illness, a condition, a set of symptoms, whatever it may be, and therefore is is keeping someone stuck in that position of needing that support. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a waste of money itself for having to, to, to review and reassess all the time. Uh, but if we take my situation, um, before I was moved over to ESA and I started this whole ordeal, I was uh, moderately affected. I was still mobile, although restricted, and I was able to care for myself. Um, and after that two-year process, the first two-year process happened, I became first housebound, then bedbound, and then completely unable to care for myself. So I'm now costing um, the taxpayer more. I, 
I wasn't on disability living allowance, which now became PIP back then. So that's extra money. Um, my care cost, I have carers coming twice a day. My bathroom had to be adapted to a wet room because I can't get in and out of the bath. It's, it's a ridiculous situation when I think about it. And that's not taking into account that every time I'm reassessed, how many, you know, I'd like to know how many thousands of pounds it costs each time. Goodness, goodness. Uh, later on in this podcast, we're going to speak to the ME Association's advisor on trying to work your way through the maze of this benefit system. Uh, so hopefully I'll, I'll get some best practice from them. Before I do, though, for, from you, Joe, do you have any good advice having been through this, in fact, continually going through this? Is there, is there something someone should do to make that process less painful? Um. With regards to filling out the forms, I would say um, one thing, don't say your systems fluctuate or it depends because um, they will use that against you. Fill it out as you're having a bad day, you know, as you are on your bad days. Um, and also, um, if you can reduce, if, if doing an activity knocks you out, causes you pain, knocks you out for, for weeks or for days, don't say you can do it because you quite obviously can't very good at pushing ourselves so be honest in that respect uh, when I first was moved over to ESA eight years ago there was absolutely no help at all um, for the appeals process I went to the Citizens Advice Bureau and they said that they they couldn't help me at all they weren't taking on any cases and at the time legal aid had just been taken um, it just been withdrawn by the Tory government to, to the majority of people I'm sure who you'll end up speaking to the specialist will be able to say, but at the time I had no help. Uh, although the Emmy Association website um, was great for, for giving advice about uh, the appeals process. So I think I would probably suggest that if you've got a um, supportive doctor, you know, get help from them as much evidence as you can, because I think that really helped in my appeals process was I had the backing of my GP. Um, also, if you are that too ill to go to travel to um, an assessment centre, you know, please make sure that you say you are. And if you can get a letter from your GP saying that, just having um, an assessor come to your home rather than having to go out does take a lot of the stress out of the situation. And I guess that also helps them understand your circumstances in situ. If they can see you in your bedroom with your adapted life and the limitations that come with it there's there's a lot of unspoken evidence there there is um i've when i've got a hospital bed they can see that and i've got everything around me um and the, the bathroom being adapted i'm, I'm sure it, it, it must help and um i think some sometimes when they as we have emmy we can push ourselves quite a lot um, we've proved that we pay for consequences so if you actually have to go to the assessor centre they can see you up and about walking or in a wheelchair and they often assess that as you being able to do these things not seeing the consequences of the weeks afterwards so if they can come to your home I think it does um, I know a lot of people do find it hard to actually get to that stage where they do come to your home and you do often need the backup of your GP to say they are not well enough or you're not well enough What's the consequence likely to be for you today and in the coming days of having just recorded this interview with me? What, what's the effect going to be, Joe? Okay, well, I can. the effect at the moment, I get 
my vision's going. I get cloudy vision. I still haven't figured that out. Um, I overheat, which causes dizziness, um, exhaustion. I feel very faint. My heart at the moment is pounding. That palpitation is just the exhaustion of talking. We don't realise quite how exhausting it is until you have a condition like ME. Um, I guess over the next 24 hours, I've just symptoms my normal symptoms just increase but the dizziness is the hardest thing for me and hypersensitivity will ramp up my tinnitus uh, pain um and we never really know quite how much it's going to hit us um and it can be a day or two before it fully does unfortunately this hot weather won't help but um i would say it would probably take a few few days to recover from Joe, I hope somewhere in the midst of the next few days you can take heart in what I suspect will happen and that is people listening to this will be very grateful. They will admire your own personal determination and I think they will find it very helpful if if they too are going through something similar or are about to go through that that benefits maze as well so just on their behalf and, and certainly for me personally i i want to thank you for for taking the time to to talk to me today it's really appreciated thank you thank you for highlighting the issue well let's pick up on some of what joe was talking about around benefits and speak to Anne Innes, who's a benefits advisor who uh, supports and advises the emmy association and welcome to the emmy show hi gary Good to speak to you today. I guess the obvious starter question, given what I'm told your job title is, what on earth is a benefits advisor? Um, well, basically, my job is to support people through the, the maze that is the welfare benefits system. Um, so advising them on what benefits they might be entitled to, um, helping them to complete their claims, Um I do a lot. I do a lot of obviously uh, disability benefits. So I do a lot of PIP and ESA. So I might attend a medical with someone, or I might prepare them for a medical by explaining to them what to expect. Um, yeah. So very varied, all the way through to basically um, representation at appeal. Um, before we get into some of the detail, just just in broad terms, someone who is perhaps for the first time getting into and navigating the benefits system, how how difficult is it? I think it's a maze. I think it's a complete minefield. And, and people come to me and they know absolutely nothing about what they might be entitled to. And because I've been doing it for so long, I suppose to me it's it's kind of obvious and clear, but actually it's not obvious and clear to everyone else. Um, yeah, so I do think it's a maze, and I, I do really think that people need supporting through the process. Um, and not only is it a maze, but it's also quite a traumatic process to go through as well. Which is exactly what Joe was speaking about. The the stress, the delay, the trauma of going through that, uh, the the physical effect that had on her and the degradation, mm-hmm. the degradation of her own ME symptoms as well. Mm-hmm. D- do you see yeah. that in people then? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the whole process is about focusing on everything that is bad, isn't it? You know? You focus on all your symptoms and all the things that you can't do um, in order to basically be able to complete a claim pack. And you can just see people at the end going, oh, God, you know, I, I thought I was dealing with, with with this and actually it's really, really bad. And 
So you can see people just getting really depressed, really downtrodden. It's just a horrible and also degrading experience to have to go through, really, some of the questions that I have to ask people. Um, are things that they probably wouldn't even tell their nearest and dearest. And it's just a horrible process. Now, we could sit here and have a good moan about the system, but it's not going to change anything during the course of this conversation. So let's make the best of a bad job, I, I, I guess. Um, for starters, in your experience, are there people who haven't got a clue that they're entitled to things in the first place? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So, I mean, there's a variety of benefits out there. I say that like, like they're freely on offer. That's not kind of what I mean. But there are different benefits depending on people's circumstances. So there's benefits dependent on what your income is, what your partner's income is, what your savings are. Um, and then there's different degrees depending on your degree of disability. So, yeah, um, pe- people often aren't aware, especially when they first get ill, what, have never na- navigated the benefits system, know nothing about benefits, what they might be entitled to. So that's where the benefits check comes in useful, being able to talk through with somebody that knows the benefits system, what they what they might be entitled to. Um, and also to do benefits check dependent on their income and savings and whatnot. And, and where does somebody actually go to do that? Is there a website? Is there a, a phone number? Do, do you knock on the door somewhere? What do you actually do? Well, if, if you've got ME, you can contact the ME Association and, and um, they will be coming. Um, they, they send any queries, any email queries on to me. Um, unfortunately, because of our funding, we, we don't have um, the funding to basically go into, into detailed casework for people. Um, I work privately as an MA, M, uh, welfare rights advisor for people with ME, but I, I charge for that. Um, so people can come to me privately, but there are plenty of free services out there as well that are not necessarily ME specific. So there's the citizens advice. There's um, a lot of local authorities have a wealth, a dedicated welfare rights advice service. Um, there might be disability rights charities, um, or there might be a local law centre that deals in welfare benefits law and can give welfare benefits advice. So there are other places out there that do give free advice. And I would say probably the first port of call would either be citizens advice or welfare rights advice um, or to contact the ME Association if it's a quick and simple query and not detailed casework. But can I be clear that if you feel you've got the wherewithal, you can do this yourself? Yes, you can. And there are websites out there. Benefits and Work is one of them um, that produce really comprehensive guides. But most people with ME, and I would imagine anyone with severe ME, would not be able to follow that guide. They're about 70 pages long. Goodness. Um, So, yeah, the brain fog will will, will kick in probably after page two. Um, And... um, the, the ME Association have a guide. I've just completed one for the ME Association on Universal Credit and another one on ESA, and we'll be working on the PIP guide later on this uh, this year. So um, the ME Association produced guides as well about how to best fill in the form. Um, but I would advise someone to, to get some advice. And the reason being, a lot of the, a lot of the questions, particularly with ESA, um, Oh, maybe with PIP as well, actually. They don't really ask about fluctuation. Um, and people, when you ask somebody, for example, one of the descriptors on the ESA form is, can you 
uh, lift your arm above your head. And somebody will say, well, yeah, I can lift my arm above my head. And they'll put their arm on top of their head and they'll say, right, okay. Imagine you were in a factory or in a shop and you had to stack shelves for six hours. Could you keep putting your arm above your head? <laughs> and then you start to get a different answer. So, but the questions aren't worded in that way. So it helps to understand what the law is. Um, so it does help to have somebody to, to help you um, complete the form that understands how you're actually supposed to be assessed. I, I guess so this, I all... this ties in a bit with what Joe was saying earlier, that actually the same question, you could give an honest answer that paints a picture of health without realising you're doing that. Yeah, well, it's all about fluctuation. And actually, I see a lot of people do the opposite as well. So it's either one extreme or the other. So I, I see people who've, who have heard, I've filled the form in like it's your worst possible day or they've read it on a forum. And that's the worst thing they can do. So when somebody reads their form, if a medical assessor reads the form or, or, or a decision maker or somebody at a tribunal, and the person said, well, you know, basically I can't get out of bed and I can't speak and I... It, you know, I, I can't do X, Y, and Z. And then they're there in front of the tribunal panel speaking and clearly out of bed. Then the first thing they're going to do is think they're not a credible witness. So what I tell people is they need to be very specific about how they vary. Um, and most people with ME vary throughout the day as, as well as throughout the week. Yeah. Um, and obviously, if, if you've got severe ME, then, then we're talking probably less variability. Um, but, but certainly, um, for the majority of people, we're, we're talking a degree of variability that, that needs to be specified. Um, and one of the reasons I say that, actually, is um, this, this term reliably, particularly for PIP. The law around PIP says that if you can't complete a descriptor at any given point within a 24-hour period like a waking period, obviously, like somebody's, like, uh, you know, what's considered to be a normal day. If during somebody's normal day they couldn't, I don't know, uh, hold a conversation or, um, i trying to think of another example, or they couldn't have a shower, they have to pick their time of the day. They couldn't just do it as and when they pleased. Then they're supposed to be assessed as being unable to do it for the entire day. However... In reality, that never happens. So if I'm filling in a form for somebody, I will make that really clear and I'll be asking the person about, you know, are there times of day that you couldn't do this descriptor? Um, so when I say use the word descriptor, I'm getting into a bit of terminology there, but basically the descriptors are the tasks uh, that they ask the questions about for PIP and ESA. Um, yeah. That is a really helpful piece of advice because in my mind I was thinking there'll be people who, who are far too polite and paint a rosy picture and there'll be people who think, well, the appropriate thing to do is, is, is paint the worst possible picture. But actually, mm -hmm. if you are someone with that fluctuating set of symptoms, that is the picture that you need to find a way of painting. Uh, you also mentioned earlier about when filling in these forms with, with, with your clients that, that it can be, I don't know if you did use the word degrading, but, but you certainly gave that, that impression that, that it's certainly a very intrusive experience. Just, just, just tell me a bit more about that. We, we have to, especially for PIP, you have to ask questions about people's ability to toilet themselves, um, which is never a nice question to ask. It's never a nice question for someone to talk about. Uh, so issues with the continents and stuff like that. 
Um, so you're really kind of asking people some very, very personal questions. And also people don't like to admit that they're struggling. Yeah. Um, so a lot of people will say, yeah, yeah, I'm fine, I'm fine. But when you really start digging... Um, it kind of uncovers the fact that, well, yeah, they are coping, but they're, they're, not, they're still struggling. And it's not about I'm unable to do this at all. It's about the level of difficulty that somebody has doing it. And is that considered reasonable? And people have developed so many coping strategies that what becomes their normal is not somebody who's fit and healthy is normal. And that's what they're supposed to be being assessed against. Um, so, so that in itself is another issue. And once you've been assessed, that's not the end of the story because there are reviews down the road. So this this yes. this work is like painting the fourth road bridge. It's it's never over, is it? No, no. I mean, there's no such thing as a, with disability living allowance. You used to have what was called a lifetime award for some people, um, but there is no such thing as a lifetime award anymore. So for PIP, um, you can have an ongoing award. And the longest ongoing award you can get is about 10 years. Uh, so they'll review you in 10 years' time. Um, now, if you're over state pension age, that's changed now. And what they've said is they're going to give people over state pension age what's called a light touch review. Right. Um, but um, most people will get reviewed um, frequently, really. I, what I tend to see is... Um, I have got clients that I've I've worked with that we've managed to get them 10-year awards, but then other clients tend to get reviewed every two or three years. And actually, you have a review date, so they might say, right, we need to review this claim in 2000 and, I don't know, what, where are we now? 2019, so right, we'll give you a review date of 2022. But actually, they send out the form a year earlier, so you've actually only got two years. So, yeah, it's, 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 it's a strange process, and I'm not entirely sure what the logic is behind that. I, th I think the idea is that it's to give people time um, to be able to, um, to get their uh, claim assessed, because particularly for PIP, it can be quite a lengthy process from the time you fill in the claim form to when you get your decision back. And what do you mean by lengthy? Are we, are we talking days, weeks, months? Months months goodness I, yeah I've had, I've had clients wait three months for an assessment four months and then they'll have their assessment and then it could take another eight weeks for a decision to come back then it might not be a decision that we agree with and then we might have to put in a mandatory reconsideration and that process in itself can take either a month or two months to get all the information together and submit it put in a mandatory reconsideration that could take another three months to be looked at potentially um and then you might decide well you've got no further i'm going to go to appeal now appeals are taking at the moment where i live around a year to be heard so yeah this is not a quick process and and what um, if there's somebody there who is in financial need after all they are applying for this to to support their life or their existence perhaps more mm -hmm. accurately what mm -hmm. happens to that person in the meantime well, we're in an age of austerity, aren't we? And, and, and that, there's a reason for that, you know, and uh, the benefit system is, is one of the reasons um, in that, you know, during that time, people are going to have to find support from friends, family, 
I've known people lose their mobility cars because they've been reassessed and lost their mobility component. So I'm making it sound very doom and gloom, but I don't want to put people off applying for what they're entitled to. And I do have people coming to me and saying, actually, I don't want to claim there's people worse off than me. And that may, that may or may not be true, actually. But it's a funny, it's a funny thing. But basically, we've got a system. It's a national insurance system. And the clue is in the word insurance. So it's insure. You're paying money when you earn, when you work. You're paying insurance for when you get ill, like you would with an insurance policy if you took, if you took out, you know, protection. Yeah. So this is something that people need to shift their thinking around because our, our media kind of basically gives us the impression that these people are taking our money off us and this is our hard-earned cash and these people that are claiming benefits are taking it away from us and we're creating a culture of fear and a culture of disability hate crime, really. And um, and that's really not what it's about. And, and it's just bringing people back to the reality of the fact that, well, actually, you're entitled to this and you've paid towards this scheme for, you know, and it could happen to anyone. And I say this to people. I do disability awareness training as well. You know, this could happen to anyone at any point in their life. Um, and, you know, people kind of compare impairments and, and really you can't compare impairments. Um, and, and I think people with ME do that because it's invisible, because it's fluctuating, it may still actually um, impede their life more than somebody else's impairment because of the nature of it. So, you know, I think we need to get away from this culture of comparison with each other and, and this culture of, of blaming and scapegoating and just, just be very clear about the facts. This is an insurance scheme, you've paid into it, and if you are entitled to it and you meet the eligibility criteria, then you should be claiming it. The other thing that I wanted to talk about, actually, if you don't mind, Gary, is the fact that um, the ME Association... Uh, we recently had uh, a meeting with uh, at the Houses of Parliament with the um, with the Minister for the DWP, um, yeah. Justin Tomlinson, um, and we brought up a number of issues that uh, we see repeatedly uh, where the claims pro where the claims process falls down for people with ME, and one of them is this reliably um, terminology. So, as, as I explained um, earlier on whether someone can do something reliably is all about can they do it at any given point within a 24-hour period more days than not and if they can't they should be assessed as being unable to do that yeah that's not happening in reality so we've basically been asked to send the cases where that isn't happening to parliament so for, for a course of maybe one or two months so i'm in the process of doing that at the moment because that that is that is piece of law is something that will basically get a lot of people with ME what they're entitled to. Um, the other thing is the way that the guidance is given to the um, people that assess, so the healthcare professionals um, that carry out the medical the face to face assessments, um, is very very simplistic. Um, and it doesn't take into account, often doesn't take into account fluctuation. And I very, very seldomly, in fact, probably never anymore, see people with ME score points for cognitive issues, um, which is quite disturbing. And it's another matter that we're bringing up with Parliament. 
Um, so if someone can literally answer their name and answer questions, even if they're umming and ahhing, they're very unlikely to be scored any points for cognition. And I have had people that couldn't even do that and still came away with no issues with cognition. The other thing that we see repeatedly is after effects not being taken into account. Um, so basically, you know, they, they might be able to, people might be able to get through a face-to-face -face assessment, but that might leave them completely debilitated for a day afterwards, two days. In the cases of severe ME, it might be several days. Um, but that is never taken into account. Um, and after effects are supposed to be taken into account. So there, there's, there's quite a few issues that, that we're trying to raise at the moment around, around the um, assessments and, and really how, how they are not being carried out in line with the law. Um, yeah, so we're raising those with Parliament at the moment. And the, other, the observations that are made in the medical assessments are very snapshot. They're making snapshot um, judgments, basically, which they're not supposed to do. Often also what we see is um, evidence not being taken into account, um, even medical evidence, which is quite disturbing. Um, so I think if I was going to give somebody some top tips, I'd basically tell them to make sure they talk about variability. Don't fill it in as if it's the worst day, but don't, don't, play things up as well in, in, in terms of, um, oh, you know, I'm fine with everything. They need to talk about the level of difficulty that they're having and how that varies throughout the day as well as throughout the week. During the assessments, I always say to people when I'm preparing somebody for an assessment, remember the word but, and they, they actually say this in the benefits and work guide, so I, I should give them credit for this. So you, you, can, you can be asked very closed questions in a medical assessment. Um, so, for example, do you go to the supermarket? And people will say yes. And I'm like, yes, but. Yes, but I can only do it once a week. Or yes, but I can only do it once a month. And then I'm in bed for three days afterwards. Or I have to hold on to the supermarket trolley for support. And I can only do one aisle. So the closed questions, really, it's down to the person in the medical assessment to, 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 have, to have some knowledge of, of what the questions are getting at. Um, which is, is where advice comes comes into useful from in, into use from somebody that knows the system, and then to basically fill in the gaps for the assessor. Um, so never to give just yes or no answers, basically. So another one is, can you use a computer and people will, or can you use a mobile phone and people will say yes, and it will yes, but there's times a day that I can't because I can't even hold a conversation for you know for significant periods in the day, or if I've just held a conversation, I won't be able to hold another one. So it's supposed to be looking at repeatability as well. Um, another big tip is medical evidence needs to be relevant. So I see a lot of people in a panic, and understandably so, going to their GP and getting them to just write them a general letter, these are my conditions, um, these are my medications, that's not going to cut it. They're not interested in the conditions, the medica the medications they are actually quite interested in. Um, but the conditions themselves, what they're really interested in is the level of functional disability that somebody has, the level of functional impairment um, that their condition's causing them.
what what would be much more useful and and, and basically i've given my um format to the me association that i use for my private clients so people should be able to get that from the me association now it we, we produced a form that people can give to their medical professionals that basically asks about their ability to do the different descriptors um to do these different tasks and often the gps won't know that so it, it would be a good idea for the person to maybe book a double appointment whether it's a telephone appointment or a face-to-face with the gp to actually talk them through the difficulties that they have because usually you never have time to tell your gp that amount of detail in a 10-minute appointment yeah they're my kind of top tips really they are brilliant top tips. Uh, I think I speak on behalf of a lot of people to say I'm also grateful that you are doing that top level lobbying at, at parliament level as well. I know you shouldn't need to do it, but I'm glad you are doing it and, uh, and, and wish you and all your clients well with, with all that follows. And I hope it only improves with time. I just fear it won't improve anytime soon. But uh, Anne, thanks for joining us on the ME show today. Thanks very much, Gary. Nice to speak to you. Now, you'll find links to the things we've spoken about in this special edition of The ME Show, including Joe's brilliant blog in the show notes that accompany this podcast and online at emmyassociation.org.uk forward slash The ME Show. Now, it's also important to acknowledge the payback Joe suffered physically in the days after recording the podcast. So I just want to place on the record both my admiration and absolute gratitude for her efforts. Joe. It really is appreciated. I also want to recommend to you the Emmy Association on all their social media channels, now including Instagram as well. There's a wealth of useful information and advice, particularly on their main website. And finally, if this edition of the Emmy show to mark Severe Emmy Week is the first time you've heard the podcast, well, welcome. But also know there are two previous series which you can find on iTunes, Spotify, and most good podcast platforms. I've spoken to medics and campaigners and people with ME and many others besides. Just search for The ME Show. For now, as always, thank you for listening. <laughs>